The Metropolitan Opera Guild is the premier arts education organization dedicated to enriching the lives of children and adults through the magic and artistry of opera. To learn more about the Guild's many exciting programs and events, please visit metguild.org. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. I'm your host, Naomi Baratera, and the goal of our podcast is to share knowledge and insights into the operatic art form, drawing our content from a variety of different educational programming that we have going on here at Lincoln Center in New York City. Today's episode is the second installment of our Memories from the Golden Horseshoe series, in which Met broadcast commentator Ira Siff speaks about the legendary performances that he witnessed at the old Metropolitan Opera House in its final years between 1961 and 1966. In this episode, I hope you will enjoy remembering, or perhaps discovering for the first time, the likes of Leonie Riesenich, John Vickers, Birgit Nielsen, Franco Corelli, Zinka Milanov, Renata Tabaldi, and several others. So without any further delay, this is part two of Memories from the Golden Horseshoe. Thank you. Thank you, and welcome back um, to part two of whatever this is, um, my life, and some of yours, I imagine, as well. Um, last week, we began to explore some of the great moments of the final years of the old Met before the move to Lincoln Center as we commemorate the 50th anniversary of uh, the closing of the old house, which, of course, as I mentioned, were my first five years of opera going. And it took just one performance. Uh, Joan Sutherland's debut season, Lucia, to turn me into a stark raving lunatic. Those were really wonderful years for me, and they were wonderful years for opera uh, on 39th Street and Broadway. Although, as I did say last week, I would hardly leap to label it as a golden age. And as I mentioned, I did see a great deal of dreck on that stage. But the cavalcade of stars at the Met at that time was truly something amazing. <coughs> Last week, we heard performances from those years of Sutherland, Riesenich, Scotto, Price, Corelli, McNeil, uh, and James McCracken. Today, we're going to continue this look at the house and its stars with some of those people again uh, and others who were synonymous with the house through long association or younger artists who managed to debut just in time to sing at the Old Met before the move. One of the stars we listened to last week, uh, Leonie Riesenich, made her debut in 1959, replacing Maria Callas as Lady Macbeth in the much-anticipated first Macbeth that the Met was ever going to have had. Her co-star was Leonard Warren. Callas had a well-publicized and well-remembered feud with Rudolf Fing, uh, who wanted her to sing Lady Macbeth back-to-back -back with Lucia and uh, also wanted her to go on the Mets' spring tour, two things she did not want to do, and he ultimately fired her. Riesenich had sung the role in San Francisco and uh, had a very, very sensational debut. So Bing got Leonie Riesenich, but he was nervous about this because she was not known at the Met. And so uh, the night of the first, the prima, the first performance of Macbeth, Bing planted someone in the house so that when uh, Leone came out for her first entrance, he had someone scream, brava callas. So he figured, with the American love of the underdog, this was a shoe-in. Riesenich said that she never really heard what, what it was, but she assumed it was something negative. So on her first high C, she just held the note interminably, walking to the front of the house, holding it. And she said, that clinched the deal. Uh, it was an amazing career that she had. Uh, the Otello, as we heard last week, was enormously intense. Although she wasn't a traditional Desdemon, it wasn't what we call an Italianate voice. There was a tradition of non-Italian sopranos singing Verdi roles at the Met, Elizabeth Rethberg, Zinka Milanov, and so forth. Riesenich was a fantastic stage presence. Uh, in her Italian roles, but the voice was truly made for Wagner and Strauss. 
Uh, she premiered Ariadne of Noxus at the Met in 1962. It had never been done there before. And it was one of the big events of those years to finally have that opera at the Met. Uh, as with Wagner's Elizabeth, Elsa, and Sieglinde, Leonie Riesenich was unsurpassed in those years and since as well, my opinion. She had a partnership with the Sigmund of John Vickers, and that was an unforgettable thing for its, its intensity and its vocal splendor. Vickers came to the house in 1960 as Kanyo in Pagliacci. His voice was something of a miracle, like Birgit Nilsson's voice, uh, who we'll also hear today. Vickers had the ability to seem as if he were just speaking and filled the house easily with his huge slender sound, so full of point and forward placement. Diction was always crystal clear with him as a result of that placement. Uh, as a stage animal, Vickers' intensity matched that of Riesenick perfectly. He always seemed to have certain haunted qualities to his presence, which made his Sigmund absolutely right, just as, as much as other outsider roles he portrayed, like Hermann in, in Pique d'Ame or his masterpiece, Peter Grimes. We're going to hear today uh, Wagner's Die Walküre, beginning with Sieglinde's narration, you have it on your text sheets, uh, about her forced marriage to Hunding, uh, then Sigmund's rapturous aria of Interstürmer, uh, as he and his twin sister begin to fall in love and are surrounded by the elements of spring, which represents their love. As Sieglinde replies in her aria, Du bist der Lenz, you are the spring, melting away the long winter's frost. The two discover their true identity as long-lost brother and sister and rush off together to commit passionate incest to some of Wagner's hottest love music. So uh, we're going to hear the finale to Act One of Wagner's Die Waldkura from a 1965 Met performance with John Vickers and Leonie Riesenick. <laughs> Oh, 
by the way, <laughs> that uh, fever pitch performance was conducted by William Steinberg. Um, and Leone, the pitch that Leone hit is an E natural above high C. Just We pitched it once. And, um, another great Wagner presence, probably the greatest of that time, was the Swedish soprano Birgit Nilsson. Uh, uh, Nilsson's debut as Isolde was such a sensation that, of course, it made the front page of the New York Times. She had a slender, gleaming glacier of a voice with a magical top that seemed disembodied and effortless, like that of a high coloratura soprano, yet huge in its carrying power. Her stamina was endless, and her technique was based on keeping the voice, what she called in later years when she gave master classes, slender. You have to keep the voice slumber, which worked very well. She never pulled weight up from the bottom of her voice to the top. And as a result, the top was light and gleaming, yet enormous and focused. Uh, the first time I heard Birgit live was opening night of 1963 in Aida. The ritual of the standing room line, I talked about some of that last week when I talked about the two days and three nights in the street to see Collis and Golby and Tosca. Um, the normal ritual was that you got in line in front of the house uh, on one of two lines. There was a line for the downstairs standing room at a whopping $2. And there was the upstairs, which was $125. And uh, you got on one of those two lines. And uh, at 12 o'clock, the uh, tickets would go on sale or sometimes uh, for matinees, I think, and later for evening performances, like 6 o'clock. And uh, then when you were allowed in the house, uh, you would run, if it was upstairs, you'd run up the stairs, knock over several aged men <laughs> in order to get the best possible place. The standing room in that house wrapped around the bottom and the top, the orchestra and the family circle, unlike now where it's only in the back, so you could get quite close to the performers. Um, in this, uh, I remember this 1963 uh, Aida for a number of reasons, and one, of course, was Nilsson's performance, which is astonishing. Uh, we had very shabby casts at that time. We had um, that Valkyrie we just listened to was Birgit Nilsson uh, and George London and Lainey Reasonick and John Vickers. This Aida was, um, was uh, Birgit with Carlo Bergonzi uh, as Radames and Robert Merrill. Uh, and uh, in both performances as Frika in that one, and Amneris in this one, was, was Irene Dallas, who was a fixture at the house at that time. I also remember this performance because I had lunch with Birgit Nilsson in London once and then uh, went to one of her master classes where she talked about keeping the voice slumber. And then, uh, then I was singing in London at that point, and on one of my dark nights, she was doing one of these diva reminiscence things with slides. And up came this picture of the opening night, uh, afternoon of that opening night, in front of the house where I was online uh, at 17 to get a standing room ticket. And she came by in this beautiful brocade coat. She was all dressed for the party after the performance. So she uh, greeted her fans. And so, of course, we all asked for autographs. So she asked one of them to hold her cigarette. And uh, so she could give an autograph to this 17-year-old boy that was me. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah. And then I found this picture when she did her diva in reminiscence thing in, in, uh, in London. I went to it, and then all of a sudden, this thing came up on the screen. And there I was getting an autograph from Birgit. So I asked her where the picture came from. She said, my book. So <laughs> I got the book. So anyway, uh, the 1961 uh, Cecil Beaton Turandot, starring Birgit and Franco Corelli and Anna Maffo, another shabby cast, uh, conducted by Leopold Stokowski, was another great sensation of those years. Uh, I saw it in 1965, a few years later, with Birgit and Franco and Lee Chalvanese crawling around the stage as Liu. Turindo's entrance aria in Questa Regia, one of the most difficult entrance pieces for soprano, on a par with Mozart's for Constanza, Electra's, uh, the Celeste Aida for Radames, uh, she would toss off effortlessly. In the aria, Turindo explains why she requests her suitors to answer three difficult riddles and why she beheads them if they get even one mistake. 
a rather severe method of courtship, I think. It seems that thousands of years before her ancestress, the princess Lo Uling, was abducted by a Tartan warrior. Her screams were heard in the night, her voice finally stilled. Turindo's ritual, murder by riddle, is revenge for that horror. My nesun mavra, she says, no one shall have me. Uh, the riddles are three, but death is one. And Caliph, of course, her latest suitor, a tenor, replies, the riddles are three, but life is one. And they battle out those contradictory sentiments on a high sea. The competition between Nilsson and Corelli is legend. And at that lunch I had with her, I got to hear all her tired old stories in person, which made them absolutely wonderful, not tired or old. Um, among the things that went on was that uh, Corelli, and this one I'm not sure I knew before that lunch, used to secrete a sponge in his tights, not to enhance the uh, sight of his equipment, but rather to be able to turn up stage and moisten his throat before important notes, then put it back in and turn forward again. Uh, at one point during, uh, during the, the um, I think the third act, Love Duet, he would remove a, um, Turindo's veil and then turn up stage and blow his nose on it. Um, during a curtain call, he took Birgit's hand and uh, pretended to look like he was kissing it, but he actually bit it. So Birgit called Rudolf Bing the next day and said, I'm so sorry, I have to miss the next performance due to rabies. <laughs> So from this 1961 Met broadcast, we're going to hear Birgit Nilsson toss off in Cuesta Regia, and we'll continue into the riddle scene. And for time, we'll have to stop after uh, Franco gets the third riddle correctly, which I think is also an appropriate place to stop, because it's really a workout for a tenor to get three questions right. <laughs>
Those high notes are such a miracle, aren't they? Disembodied, and they were huge. They seemed to be coming from the chandelier when you were in the house. Uh, I was also fortunate enough to catch the tail end of the Met careers of a few old timers, and thanks to the wisdom imparted by a few of my standing room line buddies, I learned that it was important to see these artists while they were still singing. Uh, chief among them were two divas of a certain age, uh, Zinka Milanov and Licha Albanese. As we learned when Licha passed away, her certain age was even four years older than we thought it was. She left us at 105. Milanov had been a Met stalwart since 1937, with a bit of a break between 47 and 51 when Edward Johnson didn't renew her contract. But as soon as Rudolf Bing arrived, he brought Zinka back, and she remained in the house until it closed. Uh, much to her disgust, she wasn't taken to the new house. Uh, she appeared in uh, Andrea Chenier two nights before the old house closed, and in the closing night gala, she sang the Chenier duet, final duet with Richard Tucker. By the final five years of her career, Milanov had relinquished her great Verdi roles, Aida Trovatore, the Forza uh, Leonora as well, Amelia and Bala in Mascara, mostly to Leontine Price, to whom she was distantly polite. Zinka was not the loveliest of people, although her fans adored her, and in fact it was a few of her fans and Tubaldi's who initiated those death threats to Leni Riesenich that I spoke about last week. Um, I remember when I was uh, about 16 or 17, I went backstage to get an autograph from Madame Milanov after Simon Bocanegra, and I really did hear a fan of hers tell her that her voice was like silver, to which Zinka replied, no, gold. <laughs> Zinka had an enormous, rich, dramatic soprano voice, almost as big as her ego, and a fiery temperament which manifested itself in some wonderfully colorful old-school posturing. One of her late career roles, as I said, was Amelia in Simone Bocanegra. When the curtain went up from the audience, you would see Zinka with her back to the audience wearing a gigantic red gown and what I can only describe as a dunce cap and veil dangling from it. Her hands were always raised and there seemed to be a finger uh, a ring on each and every finger. And as she pivoted around slowly, one was dazzled by the spectacle of Zinka's bouffant beneath the dunce cap, as well as the various applied beauty marks on her uh, face, complementing the not quite concealed age marks on her ample bosom. And there were those two sets of blue beaded eyelashes to top off the look. There is an Avedon photo that bears this out. I'm not making this up. Uh, Amelia Desdemona, Madalena, and Chenier were her remaining roles, and uh, the only video extant of La Milanov, the only one, is a late career, late-ish career, uh, one from her then, one of her then famous roles. This is from the late 50s, just before I started going, and that role was Tosca, and we're going to watch Zinka now uh, sing the Visi Darte. I always love this. It's, it's vocally so beautiful, but it looks kind of like, to me, like she's scolding the Madonna and then decides it's better if she just pleads with her. <laughs>
wonderful. One of the most beloved Met artists of that time, or really any time, was Renata Tibaldi. Tibaldi had a warmth that made it impossible not to love her, even though by this time she'd had a vocal crisis, withdrawn, returned, and not quite as glorious. Tibaldi still possessed a creamy middle register of great beauty, and that smile, what Rudolf Bing, who adored Tibaldi but had to negotiate with her, called dimples of iron. For many of us, Tubaldi was, simply was, Mimi, and I saw a miraculous Tosca with her in 1964 with uh, Gobi and Corelli, in which she was partnered by uh, Corelli, actually by accident, because Barry Morell got sick and was replaced by Corelli. Um, it wasn't so, really, Mr. Gelb's time is not the only time when uh, covers are chosen as stars to replace people when they're ill. Uh, it was amazing when she sang the Visitarte that night. It was as if the vocal clock stopped and went back 10 years. The aria was still alive in her vocal placement in the muscles of her throat and was simply ravishing. I'd never been one persuaded merely by beautiful tone, almost ever, but that night I was subjugated. And in addition to the tone was that Tobaldi warmth. So we're going to watch another Visitarte. Uh, and this one is uh, Renata Tubaldi. Such a magnificent sound. It's interesting for those of you who were here last week to think that uh, if you want to understand why the Kalas Gobi Zeffirelli Tosca was so revolutionary, think about that Visitarte last week compared with these two. 
this one only from three years before the Collis one, was a complete revelation, what went on on that stage in that opera with those ingredients compared with what we were accustomed to. Uh, one of the features of Rudolf Bing's Met was that although Bing initiated a number of the same things Peter Gelb used 60 years later, theater directors staging opera, famous uh, family versions uh, in, in English, playwrights and, and screenwriters creating English librettos, the Met on TV. One difference was that once a production hit the stage, any number of casts would perform it uh, rather than one originally rehearsed ensemble. The downside was certainly a lack of unity of ensemble in the approach to the staging and in some cases to the music. The upside was that in the space of a season, one uh, or two seasons, one could see, for instance, five or six different Toscas rather than just one or perhaps two. I recall in the space of those two seasons, the Tobaldi Kala season, 64-65, seeing Leontine Price, Dorothy Kirsten, Birgit Nilsson, Leonie Riesenick, Gabriella Tucci, Renata Tobaldi, Maria Callas, and Regine Crespin in the role. Crespin, the great huge voiced French soprano, had debuted as the Marshallin, which was a sensation. The voice was so enormous, the top could sometimes become unwieldy. And later, in the new house, she reemerged as a mezzo-soprano, uh, becoming memorable Carmen, Charlotte, and Berter, and an unforgettable old prioress in the dialogues of the Carmelites. At her glorious best, Crespin was a singer of great elegance and vocal riches. In the old house, I had two Siglindas that I followed and loved, Leone for her passion, fearless vocalism, utter dementia, and Crespin for her vocal opulence. So we're going to hear that same aria that began our Valkyrie uh, excerpt with reason. If we're going to hear that aria, Der Menezippe, with Crespin.
In 1965, there were a number of momentous debuts. Uh, Mirella Freni arrived in La Boheme, and uh, Elisia D'Amore and Scotto we covered last week, and also Elisia D'Amore and her debut role, Butterfly, and Lucia as well. Uh, Grace Bumbry bowed as Princess Eboli in Don Carlo. We'll be hearing that next week. There was also a double debut of two major artists who wanted to sing in the old house before it was turned down, torn down rather. And uh, one of them was a new fresh face. He didn't really have very much power. I think he ended up uh, debuting in the old house kind of by accident, not because he was so important. Um, he became somewhat important. His name was Cheryl Mills. <laughs> and uh, the other artist who did have pull by that time, um, very quickly by the way, was Montserrat Caballé. Caballé had caused a sensation the previous spring when she stepped in for Marilyn Horn in a pair of Carnegie Hall concert performances of uh, Donizetti's Lucrezia Borgia. Uh, no one had heard of her. No one knew what to think. And then as soon as she unveiled her trademark pianissimo, floating a high A for about 600 measures over the chorus, um, and sang the entire role on one breath, she was a star. Uh, a smoker, by the way, camels. Uh, a gorgeous voice with more than adequate agility and a real feel for bel canto, Caballet appeared just at the right time at the right place. Uh, she was immediately signed by RCA and became one of the biggest, in every sense of the word, stars in opera. She was 32 at that time. She had a strikingly beautiful face with enormous expressive eyes and she was uh, she was rather static on stage but she acted with her voice and sometimes with her face to great effect uh, at the time she met her mate, met debut she was put into faust they were having a lot of faust that season because it had opened the house and they were closing the house with it so they stuck her into an empty performance of uh, of faust fortunately she sort of knew the role uh, as marguerite but they had no costume for her uh, so they <laughs> put her in Regine Crespin's Flying Dutchman outfit. Because <laughs> it was all they could find that could fit and was sort of the right period. Uh, although Marguerite would not have been Caballé's debut had she not wanted to manage it in the, in the old house, because once they moved into the new house, they were staging things for her, Traviata, Louisa Miller, and so forth. Um, she, she really was splendid in a very old-fashioned diva way and she sang the living daylights out of Marguerite's jewel song to which this recording uh, 
made in the audience at her debut attests. Uh, and listen for this endless high B, uh, the trill and the high B all in one breath at the end of the aria. It was sort of Caballé establishing herself at the Met. <laughs> Thank you. 
Don't make them like that anymore. No look at that era uh, could be considered complete without Roberta Peters and Robert Merrill. Peters made a sensational debut in 1950, stepping into the role of Zerlina at the age of 20 on no notice, having never stepped foot on an opera stage before in her life. She immediately became a huge star and a fixture on the Ed Sullivan Show, on which she performed a record 50-odd times. She also graced the voice of Firestone and the Bell Telephone Hour. Peters possessed a quality then known as pert, something we don't hear about anymore. And although she was a serious artist and a seriously gifted artist, this brand of cuteness could be a bit cloying even back then. There is no denying, however, that Roberta's coloratura abilities were superb. She had been trained from the age of 13, only studying with uh, her only teacher, William Herman, and uh, she also, he made sure that Roberta was well-schooled uh, culturally as well, fluent in Italian, taking her to museums, theater, fluent in French. She was exposed by him to all sorts of culture. It was at Herman's studio that she first met a young baritone called Robert Merrill. Merrill was an established young star when Peters made her debut. They got together and they married for almost a minute <laughs> before uh, Roberta realized that it was Merrill's voice that she was in love with rather than the young man himself. Haven't we all experienced that one? Uh, Roberta and Robert were known for their Rosina and their Figaro in Barbieri in which they appeared at the Met countless times. After the divorce, they remained good friends and colleagues performed together, both happily remarried. We have a clip of the two of them uh, singing part of the Dunque Io Son duet from the Barber Seville. The coloratura is a bit heavy going for Merrill's rich baritone, but Roberta sails through it, interpolating the sort of high florid figures in which Rosinas, who were coloratura sopranos rewriting Barber Seville at that time, reveled. Uh, only the second half of the duet was performed, apparently on what looks to me like the Bell Telephone Hour, and it speaks to a bygone age of pert soubrettes and an age of real men don't do florid runs or trill. <laughs> but they were our heroes. They were heroes of the New York Jewish American culture, who for us in Brooklyn were, as our parents frequently told us, shining examples. <laughs> <laughs> Oh! <laughs> 
So that kind of wraps it up for this week. I have to run across the street, so I'm sorry. Hold the questions for next time. And um, next week, we're going to be watching a whole bunch of uh, and listening to Grace Bumbry. And oh, God, I can't remember who. But we're going to finish next week with another Tosca. That would be mine. And we're going to uh, see how all this watching and listening in those days finally evolved into my opera spoof company in which I sang that role. So you'll get yet a fourth visitarte. And um, I look forward to seeing you then. Thank you so much for listening to episode 34 of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. I hope you enjoyed once again reminiscing on these singers of an age gone by and perhaps for some of you being introduced to these voices for the first time. Keep an eye out for part three of this series as it will be coming up in our podcast later this summer. For more information about the Met Opera Guild, you can check us out online at www.metguild.org. And if you want to receive automatic downloads of future episodes, be sure to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes so that each episode is downloaded and waiting for you every week as soon as it becomes available. As always, I'm your host, Naomi Baratera, and thank you for listening. Thank you.